Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today we're delighted to have on his second appearance on the podcast, friend of the podcast, Rob Dinnerman. He was with us in episode 20, and uh, that was a great one if you haven't listened to it already, and he does not disappoint this time around either. Uh, Rob comes on to talk about his new book, uh, The Sheriff of Squash, The Life and Times of Sharif Khan, legendary squash champion some great great stories uh about uh, sharif in that book and that comes out in the podcast how the book came to fruition uh, which he uh, co-authored with uh, sharif's wife uh, karen khan uh and some uh, some great insight there about the one of the heroes uh one of the greats of squash uh when we talk about the greatest of all time there's an argument to be made uh, for him and for uh sharif's father hashim so uh both those men are in that conversation, and Rob Dinnerman lays out exactly why um, in this interview today on the pod. Um, also, just a little bit of background on Rob, uh, in case you're not uh, familiar familiar with him. I do go into it a little bit, but uh, I got to know Rob through uh, the Squash Talk website run by Ron Beck uh, back in the, I guess it would have been the mid-90s through to the uh, the end of the 90s. And uh, Rob wrote quite well, uh, mostly on the the pro double scene, but also uh, the pro hardball scene, maybe the varsity squash scene as well. And his writing was uh, at the, you know I always, I took note of it because it, it was very well written and quite different uh, a different uh, style than most of the squash writers uh, uh, that I uh, had seen at the time. Um, and he has an, encyc- an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, North American squash history in particular, but just squash in general, but especially uh, North American squash history, the doubles pro scene, the double scene, American amateur squash, hardball squash, hard, the pro hardball scene in particular, as uh, with reference to the book, it's uh, they played hardball in North America during the, the time when Sharif dominated the game, and he gets into... Uh, you know how that scene was such a uh, a vibrant scene at the time with when Sharif dominated the game and how he was uh, integral in in uh, making it such uh, such a popular uh, a scene at the time. Um, so yes, Rob Dinnerman on the podcast uh, uh, today, and also uh, he's a, uh, a lifelong New York Yankees fan. And in case you uh, you didn't know, uh, well during the podcast they the Yankees had a one-game playoff uh, against, was it Houston? I, I forget who they had to play, but they had a one-game playoff, and Rob was not very uh, optimistic, uh, but they did come through with a big win. Their big hitters came up with some home runs, and they, they pretty much dominated that game. Now they're uh, in the divisional playoff, uh, the best of seven games, I believe, against the Boston Red Sox, who uh, dominated the year in that division in, in the uh, American Baseball uh, Major League Baseball League. So uh, he'll be a happy man, and uh, I think they've got a shot at it. They've got some good pitching and good hitting. So uh, although many of the uh, many of the listeners here may not even uh, follow baseball, but uh, a lot of the North American listeners will. So uh, Rob's a big uh, Yankees fan, and you know, he, he talks a little bit about that on, on the podcast as well. Now before we get started, uh, just let's uh, I'd like to just do a little recap of uh, – you know the squash season is underway now, and we've had some uh, some interesting and tournaments um, uh, up until now. Just to go through some of the uh, the notable results, the Hong Kong football uh, 
Invitational was won uh, on both the men's and women's side by uh, hometown favorites Max Lee and Annie Al. Uh, the the Nash Cup in Canada, uh, Emily Whitlock took out uh, Sam Cornett, who's been on the pod- podcast in the final, and Alfredo Abilla also on one on the men's side. Uh, Net Suite in San Francisco, Ali Farag on the men's. And S.J. Perry on the women's side making a statement early in the season, uh, making a statement for that uh, top spot in the ranking. So that should be interesting. Uh, in Nantes as well, uh, Declan James beating uh, James Wilstrup in the final for a great win for him. And uh, Nellie Gillis uh, winning on the women's side. Uh, there have been several other events as well. So uh, congrats to the winners of those ones. And we've got the U.S. Open kicking off. Uh, in a few days, which should be exciting. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, I think Rami, who was in the draw in San Francisco, had to pull out Rami Escher. Uh, so it, it seems as though that he's still uh, struggling uh, with injury. And uh, all the best to him. We hope that uh, he can uh, somehow come back and, and play again. Although you know it hasn't been a good. Uh, past few years for him so let's hope he uh, can get healthy and get things sorted out Uh, what a great talent he is Um, at any rate uh, let's get into this podcast Rob Dinnerman what a great episode this is the the sheriff of squash the life and times of Sharif Khan a legendary squash champion enjoy the podcast all right let's get started Rob well uh, this is episode 49 and we're delighted to have back uh, today a uh, man who was also on episode 20 uh, a few months back. He's the author of uh, several books, including uh, what we're, we're here to talk about today. He, uh, he has recently uh, authored The History of Princeton Squash and the, Sharif Squ- uh, the Sheriff of Squash, Life and Times of Sharif Khan, Legendary Squash Champion. Uh, he's also a former professional player himself on the North American Pro Tour and currently uh, still competing on the U.S. Pro Doubles Tour. Uh, perhaps most importantly, though, he's a lifelong Yankees fan, uh, and they have their big uh, uh, playoff uh, series, divisional series coming up. Rob Dinnerman is my guest again today. Uh, Rob, great having you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great, Rob. Uh, well, when I heard that um, you know the, the Sharif Khan book was uh, coming out, uh, and that you were uh, authoring it along with Karen uh, Khan. Uh, I was really excited. I mean, he's a guy that, uh, me growing up playing squash in the mid-80s, late-80s, a guy that we all looked up to back then. But before we get into talking about that, how was your summer? And uh, now that the, the book has uh, been published, both books that you have uh, coming out, um, how are things going for you? Well, it's actually, it was pretty hectic. Uh, the time, you know, not that I meant for it to end this way, but um, the uh, Princeton book um, uh, just, ca- just came out in the, last we- in the last two weeks or so, and there's going to be a big uh, book release party on campus at Princeton on October 13th, a week from this Saturday. Uh, and, um, and we really had hoped for the Sharif, uh, the Sheriff of Squash, the, the book about, by, by it about Sharif and his life, uh, to come out earlier this summer, but a number of things uh, pushed it back a little bit, and it actually just hit the uh, hit the stand, so to speak, at Amazon.com and at some of the other outlets uh, at the very, very end of September, maybe about uh, 10 or so days ago. So um, the way it sort of coincidentally turned out is that both books are coming out within, you know, a few weeks of each other. 
Right, and you've got the uh... most of the summer, you know, um, editing and just making various small tweaks and changes uh, to each of them prior to the final production. Right, right. I mean, I've only uh, I've written a, a dissertation and a, a short uh, book, uh, but nothing uh, quite like that. So I can only imagine uh, what you must have been going through. Yeah, there was there was um, the, just. Um, that was partly dictated by the fact that we used a very different format for the uh, for the uh, book about Sharif. Um, the way this book uh, is out is sort of uh, pr produced uh, is it alternates my prose with Sharif's recollections and reflections. Um, uh, the the uh, he and I, I mean Sharif and I, go back. Uh, to when I began, you know, playing on the on the WPSA, the World Pro Squash Association Pro Hardball Tour in the very early 1980s, uh, and um, and so we, you know, we played against each other a number of times. We uh, sort of went through what the tour went through together during the 80s, you know, into the early 90s before the tour kind of dissolved uh, because of the fact that softball had replaced hardball, and uh, and so we've gotten to know each other quite well and. Uh, the, he's actually always, starting in the mid 80s, he had spoken to me about writing a book about his life. Um, what I didn't know then, but sort of have, re have subsequently discovered is that he really would have, would not have written this kind of book uh, while his father Hashem Khan, the patriarch of the Khan dynasty was still alive. Uh, Hashem, uh, lived until 2014, by which time he was either 99 years old or 100 years old. Uh, and by then, Sharif had suffered a stroke, a fairly debilitating stroke that has him wheelchair bound um, uh, a little earlier than that. So the circumstances were not quite the way we'd planned it. What we ended up doing is uh, the bulk of this book um, was sort of uh, the produced as a result of a number of Skype sessions that I would have, you know, from my apartment in New York with Sharif up in suburban Toronto and his wife, Karen. Uh, Karen Khan, by the way, is a co-author of this book along with myself. Right. And for the three of us wrote this book together. And as I said, the, uh, the real key to this book were the Skype sessions that we had probably once a week or once every five days, um, over a period of a number of months. Uh, um, and from that really uh, emerged the material that makes up the, the sort of essence of this book. The format itself, as I said, is uh, alternates my prose with Sharif's reflections as discussed during the Skype sessions and is actually written by his wife, who um, uh, Karen Khan is very, you know, was very good at sort of transcribing his thoughts and, and making them into sort of a, a really series almost of soliloquies that, as I say, alternate with the prose I have. So I have never done any kind of project that involved this kind of format. Um, it just seemed to me like something that might work. And, and based upon the feedback we've gotten from the people who've ordered and read the book by now, um, they seem to uh, feel that it, it, uh, it creates exactly the right kind of narrative. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, that's what I've heard as well. I I haven't uh, picked up the book yet, but I'm after this interview. I'm going to make a point of uh, ordering it and reading it. Uh, uh, as I said, I mean, Sharif was a hero uh, for all of us back in the day who were playing squash, especially the the younger uh, generation. But obviously, guys like uh, 
you who uh, had the luxury of playing against them. Now, uh, on a personal level, obviously, you, as you mentioned, you know Sharif well, um, you know, uh, and, and as I said previously, without giving too much uh, away, uh, what was your relationship uh, with Sharif and, uh, and how did that affect, um, I mean, obviously, uh, you have a great admiration for him. Where did that come from? You know, it's it's obvious what he has done, but but in in terms of from your eyes, having been there through the years with him. Well, well, that's a, uh, what happened. Was I mean, certainly in the '70s when I started playing in college, and you know, uh, as an amateur before turning pro in 1980, uh, Sharif was uh, the dominant player in the sport, and not only was he the best player, he also was a very charismatic player. He has these sort of bug eyes that you know really you know focus on the ball intensely. Uh, he played with a certain ferocity, uh, but also a certain, as I say, there was a, there was a high entertainment value in watching mm -hmm. him play. And, and he, really, uh, he really was um, very captivating for the, for the audiences. And one of the things that comes out in the book is that um, what, made, what really made him, he was not only the best player on the tour when the WPSA formed in 19, late 70s, early 80s, but he again was sort of the ambassador for the tour as well. He was the, he was wonderful in the sort of social situations that often attend these tournaments. Um, I remember one reporter wrote that he could charm a cobra, which which really was um, <laughs> he was very ingratiating and wonderful company. And uh, the and how he, during the in researching this book, I I sort of learned how he acquired that skill. Um, a decade earlier, in 1970. He was one of the people whom Jonah Barrington, who at the time was in the midst of a run of winning British Opens, I think five British Opens in six years during the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Jonah uh, formed a, uh, a tour uh, called, uh, called uh, the First Barrington Circus, which wound through Asia, <laughs> South Wales, and Iran in the summer and fall of 1970, culminating with the British Open in January of 71. And he invited um, two British Open finalists from the late 60s, Aftab Jawaid and Abu Taleb, as well as Raina Ratnak, who was a rising Australian star, and Sharif Khan, who by then had won uh, two of the um, 12 North American Open hardball championships that he would eventually win. And uh, during that tour, which sort of, as I say, uh, traveled all the way through that part of the world, um, Barrington really emphasized to the players the importance of not only you know, playing very good squash in, in front of whoever turned out, but also entertaining them afterwards. And I think, in retrospect, that Sharif, during his time on the, on the Barrington Circus Tour, sort of learned from watching Barrington how to uh, be an ambassador for the sport. And that was a skill that he carried into the WPSA tour when the Hardball Association formed. And that was really a very important reason why that tour became as popular as it did during the 80, mid and late 1980s. That's interesting. Uh, the Bar the Barring what was the, the name of the circus again? Could you read? Uh Barrington's first circus. Barrington's um, first circus. I'm not sure if there was a second circus or not, but uh, <laughs> he called that one at the time. And as I, I, you know, as I said, Asia, South Wales, and Iran, ending in England with the British Open. By the way, in that British Open, as it happened, Sharif and Jonah played each other in the semifinals, which was, um, uh, which was sort of an interesting moment, I think, for both of them. And uh, Barrington wound up 
wound up winning the tournament. Um, and one interesting thing about that as well is that, um, as I say, some of the other people on the tour were among the four or five highly ranked players on the, you know, on the softball tour. And uh, according to Jonah, to Jonah, it was not a good mix of, of, uh, of, of players. They, it was frust- you know, obviously if you're second or third or fourth in the world, it's frustrating chasing the person who's number one and having him be your boss, which is what was happening on this tour. And there was a lot of, a little bit of backfighting and uh, backbiting and infighting, it sounds like. The one person who Jonah said acted really well all the way through was Sharif. Um, so, uh, right. as I say, that tour had its own little uh, drama, sort of, and an own little sort of competitive dynamic. But one thing is for sure, and that's that A, that tour got Sharif in the kind of, you know, extraordinary condition that enabled him to then dominate the hardball game when he returned to North America. And B, being exposed to the way Jonah um, handled himself uh, was an education for Sharif in terms of, um, you know, it was sort of a precursor of the role that he himself would play when the WPSA tour formed, you know, in the, uh, you know, almost a decade later. Yeah, I get, I, I'm not sure if this is accurate at all. Uh, but uh, I mean, obviously, John is quite a, a charming guy, a great uh, sportsman, a great uh, squash player himself. But he also had this, uh, well, part of that is because he had this tremendous uh, work ethic uh, off the court. And maybe uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps Sharif already had that, or maybe that rubbed off on him. No, that, no you're absolutely right. Sharif learned a, a number, uh, Jonah was a, was a, uh, a murderous trainer um, in terms of his own fitness. And in fact, he, he eventually, you know, trained himself into the ground. I heard he needed hip replacements and other, you know, there were there was a price he later paid for the brutal conditioning program he put himself through. Um, uh, but Sharif also, you're absolutely right. He also uh, picked up a lot in terms of in terms of fitness from from watching what Jonah did. I think Jonah did one arm push-ups, for example, which were things that <laughs> Sharif had done before. So he definitely learned, uh, you know, his fitness improved as a result of the role model that uh, Jonah was on that front as well. Yeah, it sounds. It seems to me like uh, I mean, Jonah obviously he was quite serious about it, uh, but it, there was a bit of a circus element to his uh, training techniques as well. He, uh, I had Paul Johnson on the podcast a while back, and he was saying how they used to do uh, ghosting in his backyard in their underwear with with people from the street looking on. So uh, that part I never, I never heard about. <laughs> But uh, anyway, but, there was, but 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 I will say this: there was a kind of spontaneity in that tour. I mean, it was not. It sounds like Jonah's skills and these other areas were a little better than his organizational skills because they, you know, there were times when they sort of you know weren't sure what plane they were going to catch or or didn't have a hotel room for them that night. There, there was a there was a, a little bit of an extemporaneity extemporaneity um, about that tour, uh, which to some degree made it uh, in some ways more fun, at least in retrospect. Um, but they were going a little bit by the seat of the pants because Jonah had never done anything like this either. But he had by then become frustrated with the way the, um, the sort of administrators of the sport were, were handling it. And he felt that uh, the game had to be brought more to the people and to the masses than it was. And he viewed this tour as a way of doing that. And in that respect, it was extraordinarily successful. Right. Now, there's really no one that I know that knows uh, the history of the squash clan, uh, squash clan, con clan, like you do. I've read a bit of your stuff on the, the robdinnerman.com site. And uh, there's one, uh, there are a few pieces in there about uh, Hashim, uh, Hashim uh, Sharif's father. 
uh, Sharif was the eldest of 12 children. Uh, and he obviously, uh, there were others in the family who made it to a high level. What other, uh, other of his brothers uh, managed to reach a, a decent level of squash? Oh, absolutely, that's the case. Um, uh, Sharif, as, uh, as you say, was, uh, he may or may not actually been the oldest, but he, because uh, it's unclear if there was a child before. There were two, two of Sharif's siblings um, who were born very close to when he did, uh, uh, died before they reached their 10th birthday. Uh, one of them, I think, drowned in, a, in, uh, in some sort of a water area, and uh, the other somehow got strangled by some sort of a rope in the playground. Um, but Sharif, Sharif certainly is the oldest of the 12 that, you know, that survived. Um, and uh, and his, uh, he had two younger brothers, who both of whom made it into the top 10 on the WPSA tour. And they were Aziz. Yeah. And his name was Leaquat Ali, but it was his name was, was Americanized to Charlie. Um, okay, uh, I remember so Charlie. And Charlie Khan, both of whom were regulars on the on the WPSA tour, and both of whom uh, made it into the top ten. Aziz, in fact, um, was viewed by, or at least Hashim always would say that Aziz was the most talented of anyone in the family. He had tremendous talent, didn't quite, wasn't quite consistent enough in its application of it. Uh, uh, but Aziz did get to the final of the North American Open. The last year that Sharif won the North American Open, which was in 1981, uh, Aziz. Uh, had two great, great uh, wins in the quarters and semis. He beat Mike Bassanier, who by that point was right on the verge of becoming the number one player and did become the number one player the next year. And he then beat Stu Goldstein in the semis. Um, uh, so that, uh, so as I say, this was a, a brother versus brother uh, North American Open final. Um, in fact, Michael who at that time, uh, he was Harvard class of 1980, and he was the number two player on the pro tour by the time he graduated from Harvard. And then that 80-81 season, his first year out of Harvard, uh, he um, at one point actually uh, surpassed Sharif and became the number one player on the rankings, uh, sort of coming into the spring part of the schedule. And then he had a brief slump, which included, as I say, that sort of earlier early round loss to Aziz, uh, and that enabled Sharif to end up becoming the number one player statistically at the end of that season for the final time. Right. Um, I'm sure. Oh, and, and also, yeah. just in addition to those two, there were two cousins, Moe Bulla Khan yes. uh, yeah. and, um, and, and Moe's brother, Ghul Khan. They were both, both uh, big names. Say again. They're both big, big players on the tour. Absolutely. In fact, Moe is one of only four people uh, five people, rather, to have won both the North American Open, uh, which he won for four years. He won the four years before Sharif displaced him in the late 60s. Uh, and he also won the British Open. Um, and as I say, uh, the only, uh, you know, there are very few players who've, who've done, who've won both the main tournament in the hardball game and the most important tournament in the softball game as well. Yes. Now, uh, Mo was a great player. He died actually of a, of a heart attack right after giving a lesson at the, at the Harvard Club of Boston, which is where he was his last several years. Um, in fact, John F. Kennedy, uh, somehow they, those two were friends, and Kennedy arranged for him to have, get this job at the Harvard Club of Boston. Okay. But anyway, he died after giving a squash lesson there in the early 1990s. But Mo was a, was a, you know, was a great champion in, in both disciplines of the sport. 
Right. Now, uh, getting back to, to Sharif, um, obviously he had a great uh, junior career in the UK. Uh, that uh, What brought him to the UK is sort of uh, uh, well known, uh, a bit of, uh, he, he moved from Pakistan to go to uh, to boarding school in the UK, which caused a bit of, uh, I guess, I'm sure, a bit of stress. Or um, in fact, the very opening chapter in this book um, uh, speaks to that. Uh, Sharif, um, without any for, really without any forewarning or anything, was, uh, was sent to the Millfield School um, uh, outside of London uh, at age 11, 10,000 miles from his home in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, not knowing the English language, and uh, this was arranged by the headmaster of the school had seen his father Hashem play, and uh, and basically offered Hashem a, a scholarship to have his his oldest son attend you know Millfield School for free, um, and Sharif, as I said, had very little warn uh, forewarning about this, and and uh, and went there at age eleven, and and eventually you know during his seven years there he learned the language and adapted and and uh, and as you said he was actually very good in a number of sports at, at Millfield he was a very good cricket player he was a very good soccer player as well uh, but in squash he won what's known as the Drysdale Cup which is the uh, basically the world junior championship mm -hmm. and uh, as a result um, his uh, everybody at the school got a day off from uh, from classes sort of in celebration <laughs> great yeah um... Now, he also won uh, several uh, senior events as a junior. Yes, he did. He won. He did win some some local senior events as well. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, now, what uh, what sort of brought him to to cross the pond, so to speak, and embark on a, a hardball career that ultimately, you know, as we know, he dominated for many years. What what brought him to uh, to leave the UK, maybe leave leave the the uh, the pro softball uh, opportunity and go. Uh, over to the U.S. to play hardball. Right. Well, his father Hashem um, uh, had had moved a, a number of years earlier um, and was actually the head pro at uh, one of the prominent private clubs in Detroit uh, uh, for several years. Hashem eventually later moved to Denver, but he initially moved to Detroit. And a few things went into Sharif's move. For one thing, and this book, you know, uh, very much. Um, involves or, or a lot of Sharif's life was governed or dictated by, uh, by the continuing um, sort of culture of, you know, the, the, uh, the Pakistani area he grew up in and, um, and the Khyber Pass and Muslim tradition. Sharif, the day after he graduated from Millfield, uh, was told that he was going to marry somebody whom his, parent, his father had selected for him as actually a cousin. Um, named Dilshard, uh, and he was not only going to marry her, but he was going to marry her the very next day. And this was an, obviously an arranged uh, marriage, which uh, Sharif wanted no part of. He was hoping at the time to uh, go to a university because his, you know, his grades by the end of his time at Millfield had gotten quite good. Um, he was actually studying at the time to possibly become an accountant. Uh, so he was thinking of it, you know, continuing his education. Uh, certainly, he was not thinking of getting married to someone that he didn't know or particularly like at the at the sort of behest of his father. And in fact, uh, that same day, Sharif's younger brother Gulbas also had to get married. Uh, the, 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 the two of them got married together uh, to daughters of Sharif's brother Azam, 
who was uh, who, had, who also won a British Open, uh, by the way, and a North American Open, and who was running a club called the New Grampians in uh, uh, in England. Uh, so Sharif actually, um, and there's a scene about this in the book. He actually contemplated suicide mm. um, rather than uh, rather than go through with this marriage. Uh, and he went to a bridge and looked over into the water below, and there was a a small swallow, a bird who was sort of fighting the waves and, and, um, and eventually flew to safety. And there was something about watching that bird sort of, um, you know, claim life, so to speak, or, or show, uh, show the fighting spirit um, as the way, at least as the way Sharif was observing it from where he was on the bridge that uh, made Sharif decide he was gonna, he was gonna seize life as well. And, uh, would not disobey the dictates of the culture in which he grew up, but uh, but was also going to eventually forge his own destiny. Uh, mm -hmm. That marriage was never consummated, which uh, Sharif got a lot of, uh, the, the, the family very much wanted there to be a child as a result of the marriage, but there wasn't. And eventually uh, there was a divorce and Sharif um, uh, moved, moved away from where the, he was living in England uh, to uh, to Detroit, where he was the pro at another club there and began his life in North America. Right. Well, there's a lot in there, uh, Rob. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, without giving too much of the book away, I mean, you talk about uh, the early uh, stress he had when he moved uh, uh, to Millfield and then uh, the, the possible, you know, having to uh, go through with an arranged marriage. Uh, obviously, he had great respect for his father, but uh, what was his relationship like in a you know in a thumbnail with uh his father it was not i mean as i say first of all his father was not that's one of the things that i think one of the reasons that uh that sharif um you know would not i now know that he would not have written his this book while his father was still alive even though he broached it to me 30 years ago right. um uh one thing one learns is that uh hashem is not the kind of cuddly teddy bear figure that um that he looks that, like you know, he, that the world sort of knew him as while he was alive. And, and I do not view this book as having been an, an expose in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, I do, you know, it, what, it, what it is, is a truthful account of, of Sharif's uh, life and career as experienced through the perspective of his experience of it. Um, and, uh, and the truth is, uh, Hashem uh, was very much a product of, his, of, you know, the culture in which he grew up in. And uh, I, you know, Tyrant is not the right word, but Hashem very definitely uh, felt that he deserved to be in command of whatever situation he was in at the time and, and was a bit dictatorial and was not an easy, certainly would, you know, the parent-child relationship had, uh, you know, pressures that, uh, in it on different levels than is true of most parent-child relationships. Um, Sharif still, to the, to the day Hashem died, you know, loved and to some degree idolized his father. Yeah. But he also became increasingly aware and, you know, personally had to experience the result of, of Hashem uh, being the one who basically gave the commands that everybody in the family had to sort of um, abide by. Uh, so it was definitely, an, uh, it, was a, it was a complicated, it was, not only, it was complex and complicated and, um, and uh, ambivalent uh, relationship that, that the two of them had with each other. And, and that was part of, you know, one of the challenges that Sharif had to cope with as he went about his life. Yeah, well, obviously there, 
must have been a mutual respect for each other's squash games. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, you talk about the greatest players of all time and you, you put a collection of who they might be. I mean, both of their names are there. Uh, that's absolutely correct. That, that's, uh, that's 100% uh, correct. Hashim, um, you know, Insulate won several North American Opens and, and six or seven British Open titles, the first of which was when he was 35 years old. He didn't even yeah. play competitively in, uh, be, uh, in, in the British Open until he was in his mid-30s. Uh, and one of the things, incidentally, he had always, Hashim, had always played barefoot um, in Pakistan. And, and when he... Uh, started to play overseas events, he had to, you know, you start to use sneakers. They actually slowed him down initially before he, <laughs> you know, was able to adjust to them because he was so used to only playing barefoot. Uh, but Hashim, uh, by the time Sharif was, you know, 10, 11, 12 and, and heading off to Millfield, Hashim was absent a lot of the time. He was, he did, he, he did travel a lot to play exhibitions and a different squash competition. So in addition to being, you know, a, a difficult person when he was present. He also was, was absent a lot of the time, uh, much more than I think most people realize. He did, he did a lot of traveling that was related to squash while Sharif was in his childhood. Yeah, I think for, for a lot of the people listening nowadays, especially younger people, they're, they're aware that, you know, Pakistan dominated squash, but now that we're, we're in within this, uh, this new Egyptian era. Um, but looking back at, uh, at that time, do you think that if Sharif had decided to, to play uh, softball, that he would have been uh, as successful on the softball tour? That, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question, which, you know, we'll never really know the answer to. Um, he did, as I say, get to the semis of the British Open, you know, after that extended uh, series of matches that involved the uh, traveling circus with Jonah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think, I mean, he was a, he was a dominant player on the, on the hardball tour. He won the most important event, the North American Open, 12 times during the 13-year period from 1969 to 81. Uh, t- t- he won it six times in a row, then lost in 1975 to Victor Niederhofer, the great American player, and then won it six more times in a row. And incidentally, uh, that latter set of six straight North American Opens, each one of those uh, finals was against a different player, uh, which shows, you know, in some way, uh, both the depth of that tour and also the degree to which Sharif was a dominant player. The depth uh, and the one uh, and the one constant. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said the depth as well as the one constant. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, and in play, he was in 15 straight finals because he lost the 68 final to Mo, and he lost the 82 final, as I said, to Mike Bassonier. So. Uh, 15 straight finals, 12 wins in a 13-year period. Um, there's no chance that he or anybody would have been uh, nearly as dominant on the softball tour for nearly as long. Uh, the um, you know Jeff Hunt was a was a great great player, um, uh, and he Sharif would have had to be dealing with him. Um, you know if had he stuck with the softball game during that time. Uh, incidentally. The 1977 North American Open final was between Sharif and Jeff Hunt, who came over to play uh, on our tour for a couple of months and got to the finals of the North American. And Sharif barely won that match, 15-13 in the fifth. Um, And that was a very pressure-filled match for Sharif because to some degree he felt that he was defending not only the North American Open title, but, but his whole record. Because if Hunt, who was really a softball guy, had come over and won the most important hardball championship, you know, with only a couple of months practice, that would have really 
um, hurt the credibility of, of you know, the, the record that Sharif had established. Uh, so anyway, he, he won that. Uh, but Jeff Hunt was a great player. Um, uh, Jonah was still a great player going well into the 70s. Uh, um, uh, Jahangir, of course, you know, became, you know, I think the, the greatest player of all time uh, mm-hmm. by winning 10 straight North American Opens from 1982 to 91. And there were other really, really good players during that time as well. The softball the tour had a tremendous amount of depth at the time that Sharif would have been in his prime. He yeah. would have been a very successful player. He maybe would have won a North America, a British Open or, or more than one. That would have taken some doing. But nobody wins 12 times, 12, the most important tour, 12 times in 13 years. Right. I think, uh, I mean, having talked about all these softball players, for example, uh, Jahangir and uh, Jeff Hunt and even uh, Sharif, having come over from the softball game, I guess, you know, uh, Sharif had to do the same thing, didn't he? And, and he was basically successful almost from the get-go as a... As a successful from early on. He had more time to get used to the hardball game before he started playing in hardball tournaments than Jeff or Dahangir did. Right. Um, but the other, the other, uh, this is the other side to uh, response to your question about how good we'd have been with the, with the softball game. Sharif was obviously a great player, period. But the hardball game was much better suited to, uh, to Sharif's strengths than the softball game would have been. He was an attacker. He was a guy who uh, basically created too hot an energy zone for any of his opponents to deal with. And, uh, he, you know, he excelled in the, in the front court shot-making game that was, that's always been much more an important part of hardball than it was a softball. So in addition to what I said about, you know, how good the other softball players were at the time, um, he, the, the sorry, Rob, Rob uh, sorry for interrupting. Could you just uh, elaborate on that? What you just said about the, the, the shark game in, in uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the hardball in the hardball game, there's tremendous, the, the, the opportunities for front court shot making are, uh, are much more present than they are in softball. You can see in a, in a, soft, in a softball match one of the top players, there'll be long exchanges of, of backhand rails up and down the left wall but while they wait for an opening. Whereas in hardball, you don't have to wait as long and you're better able to create an opening for yourself. If you hit a, a forcing shot, forcing a defensive return, you've got a ball that you can punish. And Sharif had a great three-wall nick, which you know is the ball that ends up you know nicking on the front wall up close. He had a very good reverse corner. Um, the fact that he tried to get out front and volley everything deprived opponents of the time they needed to recover from their previous stroke. Um, I mean, he basically sort of um, imposed his physical uh, skills on the rest of the on the rest of the hardball field in a way that enabled him to dominate through the '70s. Until the end of the 70s, there were some players who came along who uh, were similarly gifted. And by then, of course, Sharif uh, was getting to, into his 30s and was not quite as physically, you know, able to impose himself as he had been earlier. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great description of, uh, of the difference, I guess, there between uh, softball and hardball in terms of... Uh... And I'm not saying either game is better, by the way. I'm no. just saying the games are different that way. No. Yeah, I, th- I think... The yep. softball people have, have taken some steps to try to sort of speed their game up and make it more um, attack friendly. For example, lowering the tin, which they did a few years ago, yeah. was definitely geared with the thought of having more play in the front of the court because they knew that, you know, there were too many points that were just deep in the court and they, and they wanted to make their game more exciting. So yeah. 
Well, the, um, the game now, I mean, I watched uh, the, the, the event in San Francisco today, the final of that event on uh, Squash TV, and uh, these guys are attacking uh, every other shot. The rallies are going on as well because they're so athletic and so fit and fast. Uh, so it's got a bit of both now. Uh, I, think that's, I, think that's, I think that's correct. Also, the Egyptian influence. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the final last night, uh, um, uh, El Shabagi lost to who was it again? Uh, Ali Farag. Farag, okay. Yeah. So two, two Egyptians. Harvard, a Harvard guy. I'm sorry? He's a Harvard guy. A Harvard guy is right, absolutely right. And not only was he a Harvard guy, he's a Harvard guy who lost some, a number of matches at Harvard, which also mm. shows uh, how high the level of intercollegiate squash has become. Oh, sure. I mean, he was, a, he was a great player at Harvard and, and won the intercollegiate individual championship twice, but he was not a dominant player in, in, high, in college. And I think that most people thought when he graduated, he was not going to uh, shoot to the top of the tour the way he actually has done in these, you know, in these couple of years since he graduated Harvard. Um, but anyway, the Egyptian uh, players are much, uh, they, I mean, there's a reason why they win the world team championships every year and have a whole bunch of individual champions, including at the junior level. Uh, I'm not sure who the coaches are who are responsible for this over there, but they, their games are just uh, beautiful in terms of uh, the orchestration of shots and the, and the patterns of points that they play. They play much more, they play much more cerebral and, um, and sort of uh, precise and innovative. Uh, their games are much more that way than is true of many of the other countries. But, you know, the English players are mostly grinders who hit good width and depth, et cetera. Yeah. But, the, uh, but the Egyptians play with a kind of imagination in their game that, uh, that is really extremely uh, compelling to watch. Oh, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. Men, men and women, by the way. I yeah. mean, you know. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the lady, uh, Renee Mel Willili play, but holy moly. I mean, uh, she's, she's a wonderful, so smooth, yeah. she's a great player, but her game is just absolutely, you know, beautiful to watch. It's remarkable. Yeah, I like her movement. Uh, she reminds me a bit of uh, a woman's version of uh, Amir Shabana. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a very good, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. Uh, it's very very creative out there by the way she just oh yeah it is just she's play, she's singing a song out there with her racket oh for sure and, and she just moves so free so efficiently and well uh it, it's great to watch like you said um, absolutely yeah now uh rob thanks so much for for giving us time about uh, the sharif uh book now where where can we uh, i guess we can get it on amazon right uh how about your your website uh is it up well, there as well? The website is not going to carry that, but it, but it is on, uh, uh, on Amazon.com. If you just mm -hmm. punch in uh, either my name or Sharif Khan Squash uh, in, the, um, in the search box there on the homepage of Amazon.com, the book will come up. Um, it's also on, uh, on the Barnes & Noble site at this point. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, uh, I, Karen is the one, you know, Karen Khan, Sharif's wife, is the one who's really handling the marketing part. But um, I think there are going to be some other sites that it'll be on as well. But I know that it's already on Amazon.com and also in Sally Amazon.uk, the, uh, the, you know, the British uh, Amazon site, um, okay. and also on the Barnes & Noble site. So um, it's definitely available on, on, uh, on each of those already and will be on other sites as well. I also know that Karen is... Um, uh, it's going to be, there'll be, there are a number of sort of events, in, especially in the, uh, in the Toronto area, where Sharif, by the way, has lived 
uh, uh, for several decades now. Um, uh, some of the clubs, I think, are holding uh, events in which the book will be, you know, released. And, and uh, yeah, I noticed uh, Squash Ontario had a, had a bit of a, a that's right, a Squash thing going. right. Yeah. And I think Squash Canada is going to be having, uh, you know, the the national organization is going to be uh, having something there as well. Um, I know. That I think in the they should. Canada, I mean, it's not very often we get a, a great uh, a book about uh, some of the heroes of the game. So uh, I think we should uh, celebrate it. I'm sorry, I missed the last thing. I think we should celebrate that. It's not very often that we get books about our the, the heroes uh, of the game. Well, what I'm I'm really uh, what I was not sure of. Um, you know, Sharif, uh, his last year as the number one player was in uh, 1981 which is 37 years ago. Uh, he really hasn't played competitively for quite a while. And I was not sure uh, if, um, you know, if, if everybody remembered or, you know, there's a whole younger generation, et cetera. But um, the book has really, uh, people have been very responsive to, to knowing uh, that they've got a chance to read about Sharif's life story. And uh, really, as you, as you said, the uh, response on the part of the, a uh, number of the clubs and uh, and several of the squash related organizations has been has been you know a very very pleasant surprise to me and has been really quite pronounced in a way that um, that hopefully you know will will uh, enable plenty of people to get a chance to read this book if they want to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't uh, ask you a few questions about the doubles tour. That's uh, I guess it's underway. In fact, I think you said you were playing an event a few weeks ago um how are things shaping up and, and i think the big question is for me uh, because you've, we've got so many good new uh, sort of older retired psa players that are now living in uh, living stateside uh, some of them have uh, expressed an interest in playing on, on the pro double store uh, any new names any new faces any new pairings uh, uh shaping up uh, for this year's campaign well, there are some new developments. Um, the most dominant player, uh, and statistically, without any question, the greatest doubles player of all time, uh, is a guy named Damian Mudge, an Australian who, who, um, who's been living in New York for uh, two decades or so. Uh, big, strong, powerful guy. Uh, he uh, was on the number one team, first with Gary Waite for uh, about seven or so years, then with Victor Berg for a couple of years, two Canadians. Yeah, I know Victor pretty well. Great, great, great shot maker. I'm sorry? I know Victor quite well. He's a great shot maker. Absolutely. A very creative, imaginative game. Um, uh, really, you, you can try a shot at any time without, you know, uh, he's sort of um, fearless that way. Um, uh, anyway, he, they were the number one team for a while. He was then number one for about five or so years with another Australian named Ben Gould. And when Ben retired in the last two years, he and an Indian player who went to Trinity College and is now based in New York named Monik Mathur, um, they, they've been the number one, uh, uh, they were the number one team the last two years and went undefeated last year. Damien, who recently turned 42 years old and has had several minor knee surgeries over the years from which he had a pretty quick recovery. Uh, he had a much more major uh, knee operation uh, in August, and that is going to keep him sidelined at least until the beginning of calendar 2019. So he's going to be missing this whole, I mean, he's basically been a constant presence on the tour all these years. He's never missed more than an event or two at a time. He's going to be out now for months, and who knows, you know, this is 
this is going to be a tough injury, uh, tough operation to recover from. So does so that leave? Uh, so not, is there is there someone uh, primed to take over his uh, spot where he dominated for all those years, or is that uh, is there just a great collection of guys there now? Uh, I well, um, it certainly is making the tour a lot more wide open than it was before. Now, Monarch, uh the last two years, Monarch and Damien were the with the with the SDA team of the year, and Monarch was the individual player of the year. He played with uh, a recent Princeton grad named Chris Callis, who was an All-American and who was the captain of Princeton's team that won the uh, the college championship in 2012, ending Trinity College's 13-year streak. Um, he and Monik played in the first event of the season, which was just this past weekend, uh, the Maryland Club Open at the Maryland Club in downtown Baltimore. And Monik and Chris uh, won the tournament with, um, in very, very, uh, in very decisive fashion. Uh, so Monik is continuing to win. Uh, I don't think that he. I think he and Chris are much more vulnerable than uh than monica and damien were you know these last couple of years uh but they did win the first event and, and by the way chris is a great player but as i say damien's a champion for all time um so i so that the at least the feeling among the tour is that it's more wide open now and there are more teams that have chances to win there also have been some reshuffling of the partnerships um uh, sort of among the top tier teams uh during this intervening summer partly in reaction to uh to damien's you know prolonged upcoming absence. So uh, what I can say about the tour is number one, I think there are a number of teams now who can contend for, uh, for tournaments. Uh, and number two, uh, the tour itself seems to be gradually, but seems to be growing in terms of the number of events and the, uh, and the prize money at the events. And as you said, there are some former great PSA players, uh, Chris Walker, who was a finalist in the British Open in 2001, uh, uh, he and Victor Berg were one of the top teams on the tour for a while. Chris isn't, has had some hip replacements and isn't playing any longer. But uh, there are a number of PSA players. And there's also a number, much more than I think anyone expected, of the players who played on Trinity's college's team that, you know, has been winning the, the college team championship year after year. Many of them, including, including Monik, who was on, that, on the Trinity team in the in, in class of 2009, but many of them are playing and playing prominent roles on the current doubles tour. Hmm. What about a, a, like a guy like John White? I mean, I, I think if he ever got his hands on a hard John player. White played on the tour for a, played on the doubles tour for a while. Um, uh, he um, has he really has not played any events in a number of years now. He's the uh, he's the coach at Drexel and has been for quite a while. And I think he's. Um, kind of gotten out of, of competitive squash. I think he played in the qualifying for the U.S. Open, you know, singles event a year or two ago, but yeah. I don't think he's played, you know, since then. I think he's, um, he was a great player for a long time. And in double, by the way, he could play either wall, both the left wall and right. Uh, but I think he's, um, he's kind of uh, phased the competitive part out. He, is, he certainly is no longer on the SGA tour, doubles tour. Well, it sounds like a, a an intriguing campaign uh, upcoming. So, uh, and how about your your game? My game is um, all I can say about my game is uh, it's coming along, and I'm doing the best I can. I was ranked at one point as high as 16 on the on the uh, tour at the time was called the ISDA, the International Squash right. Double yeah. Association. Uh, it was that was renamed the SDA uh, in 2012. There was some sort of corporate realignment that made it preferable to have a uh, 
uh, you know, a shift of name, but it's basically the same entity, just with a different official name. Uh, anyway, I was as high as 16th on that, um, uh, but I'm certainly nowhere near there right now, and I have to play in the qualifying, And uh, but it's still great to be part of the tour. I actually was the official writer for the for that Pro Devils tour for 12 years from 2001 yeah. to 2013. Well, that's how you came to my attention when you were a uh, lead writer at, uh, I guess for, it would have been for Devils uh, Pro Squash at squashtalk.com. That's, uh, uh, right. I, that's right. I, uh, that site, you know, no longer exists, but I'm now writing for dailysquashreport.com, which is actually a much, yes, much yeah. better Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And Ted, Gross, Ted uh, Gross is the one who mostly runs it. He's terrific with the way he posts about 10, you know, links to about eight to 10 articles every day. He posts my podcast, Rob. So uh, I, I've, uh, I should give him a shout out. Hi, thank you, Ted. Uh, he definitely, he, he definitely <laughs> uh, loves posting the, the, uh, the podcast. And he's definitely, yeah, has posted all of yours, including the ones where you've interviewed other players, uh, Ron Beck and, you know, oh, yeah. a whole bunch of others that you've interviewed. Um, so, um, and what I've done in the five years since then, as I, as I alluded to, I mean, it was great doing this book with Sharif, but what I've mostly been, uh, writing our histories of squash at various colleges and, and prep schools. I, I did the har uh, history of squash at Harvard, uh, which came out three years ago. I've done uh, four different prep schools, St. Paul's, Exeter, and Deerfield, all of which are in New England, and also just finished Episcopal Academy, which is in suburban Philadelphia. And as I said, I've just finished the uh, history of squash at Princeton, which will be, uh, which will be released uh, in the next 10 days. So, and I'm looking for the next history to write, and I've got a few feelers out, and hopefully one of them will come through, uh, and I can, you know, move on that shortly. Yeah, for sure. Is that, is that related to, uh, that, that's uh, varsity related, or prep school related, or something uh... Well, as I say, there, there are four prep schools that, I mean, the, the feelers I've now, I've got, I've spoken both to some colleges and to some prep schools, and either one would be fine with me. As I said, I've done four prep schools, and, and the two main, you know, Harvard and Princeton are along with Trinity, the, the three main, you know, uh, college powers in squash over the years. Um, now, there, who's the winningest uh, varsity coach of all time? I'm sorry, say that again? Who's the, the, the winningest uh, varsity uh, squash coach of all time? The coach, you said? Yes. Okay, well, that's actually, I mean, there's a little bit of dispute on that. But, I mean, for me, the, the iconic, legendary college coach was Jack Barnaby, who right. coached at Harvard. Who was the head, he went to Harvard as a student and then uh, class of 32 and was the head coach at Harvard from 1936-7 season. He actually... Um, was an assistant when that year began, but the head coach Harry Cowles had a had a basically a, a nervous breakdown during the season, and Jack took over that season. His final year as coach was the 1975-76 season, 40 years later. Um, and he uh, was sort of the has always been looked up to as sort of he, the equivalent figure. In college basketball, would be John Wooden, the right. you know great record-setting coach at UCLA. Uh, Barnaby, and, and those two were sort of contemporaries, in fact. Um, and of course, they're both you know they're both no longer with us at this point. But Jack was um, most people view Jack as having been the greatest coach of all time, and at least by my count, he has 17 uh, national college championships. That total of 17 was equal to this past spring. By Paul Asayante, the head coach since 1994 at Trinity College. Um, uh, uh, 
he sort of was given a, a mandate or given permission by the headmaster at the school to recruit players from overseas. And this was just at a time when college squads were switching from hardball to softball. And so he was the first coach to do that kind of recruiting. Now all the colleges have, you know, it used right. to be that, that it used to be that the leading colleges in the U.S. were composed mostly of top players from prep schools like Exeter and Andover. Um, now, you, you know, you don't find more than a few uh, players from those prep schools on, on, on varsity college teams. There are so many players from overseas because of the fact they've been playing softball for decades, you know, in the other countries and only for a few decades in the U.S. Um, but anyway, uh, Paul took a few years to, um, to, you know, get enough players to become champions. But their first year was the 1998-99 season. And uh, and during the twenty during the twenty years that we're talking about through the end of this year, uh, they have won seventeen times. They won thirteen straight from ninety nine through two thousand eleven. And as I mentioned, um, uh, Princeton won the uh, Potter Cup, which is the emblematic of the national championship in two thousand twelve. Then Trinity back in thirteen, Harvard in fourteen. Uh, Trinity in 15, Yale in 16, and the last two years it's been Trinity again. So Trinity has now won 17 national championships. So I guess the answer to your question about who was the uh, most accomplished coach in terms of national championships of all time would at this point be both Jack and Paul. Okay. Okay. No, I've... Uh, I've and by I've, the way, the winningest coach of, uh, in terms of how Cups, which is the women national champion of all time, is a woman named Betty Constable, who... Won the U.S. Nationals five times in the 1950s and coached Princeton uh, to 12 national championships in the 70s and 80s. Well, Rob, um, thank you again so much uh, for all the details and, and the look back at, at Sharif's uh, iconic career. Uh, now, before you go, just, uh, just a quick uh, update on the Yankees. Uh, do you think they get through to the, the World Series now that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're ready for the divisional uh, playoff? Well, they're not ready for the divisional playoffs. That's oh, the, the problem. The, the, they have to play a wild card game tonight. Um, that's tonight. Game. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the way, I mean, the way that baseball used to be set up, uh, there were three divisions in each league, and the three winners were in the, uh, the divisional series, as well as a, a wild card team, whichever team that finished second had the best record. Um, and so those four teams would play the divisional series. The two winners would play in the league championship series, and the winner of that, of course, would play in the World Series against whoever won the National League pennant. Uh, a couple of years ago, they, they now have added a second wildcard team, and the two wildcard teams have to play a one-game playoff to have the right to join the three divisional winners. Yeah. The Yankees and the Oakland Athletics are the, with the two wildcard teams in the American League. They have to play one game tonight at Yankee Stadium, and whoever wins that game then goes in divisional series. Whoever loses that game is out. So they yeah. have to win tonight in order to make it into divisional series, at which time, if they do, they would play the Boston Red Sox. Now, the Rockies had a big win today. I say again? The Rockies had a big win. Uh, they had a big win. Uh, they sure did. And they, uh, they won the National League wildcard game last night in Chicago against the Cubs. Uh, and they played the Milwaukee Brewers, I think, um, in the uh, divisional series in the uh, in the uh, in the National League. Well, I do think it, I do think it bodes well for the Yankees. I mean, they they seem to be hitting the ball a little bit better, and uh, their pitching's coming along. They they've got Hap now, who's they have lighting, had, they lighting have it up. Had a single, 
They have a number of players who are just coming back from injuries. Uh, Didi Gregorius slightly tore the shortstop slightly, and their best player slightly tore a, a ligament in his wrist and missed most of last week. He, he just got back playing a few days ago. Uh, their best uh, home run hitter, Aaron Judge, had a, uh, got hit by a pitch in July and missed a lot of yeah. time and had only been playing for a few weeks. So, Yeah, I, so, I watched that game. It, it, I mean, it was funny because he kind of walked. He went to first base and then kind of he left the game and it didn't look that serious, but then it turned out to be quite serious. Yeah, he fractured a bone, uh, chipped a bone in his wrist and, and missed uh, probably seven weeks or something like that and, and still hasn't really – he hasn't been going back to hitting home runs. For, I think he's hit only one home run in that, you know, two weeks that he played after he got back before the season ended. They've got some players uh, – um, uh, their uh, their shortstop, uh, their, their catcher, Gary Sanchez, has not hit as well as everybody thought he would. Uh, another guy they thought would be an important player, uh, Greg Bird, uh, has, has been so so disappointed that he's now been benched. Mm. So they're in a little bit of flux, and they in fact had quite. They really had to think about who they who they were gonna, going to have pitched this, you know, all or nothing game tonight. Um, they ended up with Luis Severino, Ooh, who was okay. Uh, yeah, he's uh, 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 J.A. Happ has been very good. I think Oakland has a lot of right-handed hitters, and that's why they don't want to pitch a left-hander. But don't forget, whoever wins this game tonight has the disadvantage of not being able to use, you know, one of their best pitchers until late in the divisional series. Right. So I think getting to the World Series is going to take some real doing. I mean, they came one game away from doing that last year. I don't think the vibes are quite right this year. I, I, I think yeah. I, I think tonight's game is going to be very challenging. Oakland's played very well the last few weeks. And I think, you know, playing against Boston with uh, Boston having the home uh, field advantage, I, I think it's going to take some real doing to get to the World Series. Yeah, I think, I think they, they just might be missing one more solid, uh, you know, lights-out starter. They could definitely use use that, and and they've had a little trouble with their closer as well. Um, uh, Chapman has been, yeah. Aldous Chapman's been injured. Also, there are number there there are few too many people who are coming off injuries for me to feel like they're really ready to be at their best. Uh, you know, in this uh, in this coming playoffs. But we'll, well Rob, see. Uh, Rob, you hit a home run today, so that's all that matters. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on uh, to the podcast, and I hope we can do it again soon. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, really enjoy chatting with you about squash, the history of squash, and the things you have going on. So thanks again so much. Thank you for that. And just before I sign off, I just want to say I, um, I think that, um, you know, whether this was the right format or not, et cetera, I just think that whoever reads the Sharif Khan book is going to learn a lot of things about Sharif and about North American squash in general that they don't know and is going to find it a very entertaining experience for them. And, and that's, I think, kind of what we were looking to do. And I think Sharif's always wanted to make his sort of statement, and now he has. And uh, I think people who, who read the book are going to uh, feel good about having done so. Well, I'm definitely going to read it. And uh, thanks again for coming on, Rob. And I hope, uh, will you come back on again? I look forward to that a great deal. Thank you very, very much for having me. Thank you, Rob. Take care. And good luck well. to the Yankees. Thank you. All the way. Thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, thank you again, uh, Rob, for coming on to the podcast. Uh, that was incredible. Uh, Sharif Khan, one of my heroes uh, growing up. He was in. He was a bit past his prime when I was uh, uh, a junior in the mid-'80s, uh, but he was definitely uh, out there and, like Rob said, very charismatic even during those years when uh, – 
when uh, he lost his top spot in the rankings, but he still played such a great game and still contended uh, and went deep into many of the draws, even in the mid-'80s. Uh, during that time when he uh, when he had to relinquish the top spot in the rankings. But uh, thanks again, Rob, and we look forward to having you on again uh, just to talk uh, squash history. Uh, uh, he knows his stuff, that's for sure. And uh, thank you all for listening. We've got some great episodes upcoming. We did have uh, the boys from Squash Newfoundland uh, to give us a bit of a history of, uh, of squash in that, uh, that province, uh, that outpost there in, Nova, in uh, Canada. Uh, great people up there and a great backstory in terms of the squash history. We did have that lined up, but then uh, it fell through at the last minute. Uh, but hopefully we're going to reschedule for this week, so that will be exciting. Um, look, really looking forward to that. You won't want to miss uh, the cast of characters that uh, that we've assembled uh, uh, for that episode. Great guys, and uh, they know their their uh, their squash as well. Uh, we've also got some players from the PSA tour, both on the men's and women's side, coming on. So really looking forward to that. And also, it's uh, varsity squash time in the U.S., and we have. Uh, players and coaches hopefully lined up to come on to the podcast as well. So, everyone, thanks again for listening. Sorry for the uh, the delay be- between episodes. And uh, enjoy your squash. Have a great day. Goodbye now.